0: Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, so you can be to make your way there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you don't own one, I'll be happy for you to take that home. It'll be a, a great gift for you. If you're not familiar with how to use that, there's a table of contents at the front of the Bible. It's going to let you know where the books are, the big uh, numbers are going to be chapters and the small numbers are going to be verses. And so we're in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35 this morning. Give you a second to get there. all right, you can find your way there in a second. A number of years ago, I was leading a mission team, and so we had you know 15, sixteen college students from Georgia come over to join with us to work with us and, and while we were there with them, we were eating in a restaurant and I was there I was getting ready to put in the order and just kind of I began to hear. This, this kind of murmuring, and the murmuring gave way to this high pitch shrill. I'm talking like dog whistle loud. And I look over, and there's a group of six or seven of these girls from Georgia who are just... just. I'm thinking, you know, is, is it a hare? Is it a mouse? Like, what's going on? We haven't got, gotten our food. This isn't culturally appropriate anywhere. What are you doing? And, and I look over, and there's an actor just kind of sitting at the table... And so I walk over, and I'm like, so who's this? And they're like, yeah. so I go to one of the guys. I'm like, they, they need to get the shriek out of the system. Who is it? So they tell me. I said, well, do you, want, do you want to meet him? I mean, just, oh, my goodness. And so I said, hold on. Well, let me go over and so and just kind of, hey, uh, probably you can't hear anymore, but if you still can, you know, there are these girls over there. They'd love, uh, love to meet you. And so they come over, and they take pictures with him. And, and they have a souvenir that, that lasts, that endures today. And occasionally in my timeline, I see the pictures pop back up, and I can still hear the <laughs> But if you were to ask those girls, if you were to ask any of the people on that trip, do you, do you know him? Do you know him? I mean, do you know his middle name? Do you know very much at all about him, other than just kind of the movies that he's been in? It's, no, I don't know him, I, I, but I know who he is. But I know who he is, and, and, and I don't know him. I mean, I introduced uh, them to him, but mainly just because I could do more than shriek. And, but, but, I don't, but I don't know him either. But you see, there's a difference between knowing somebody and knowing who somebody is, and we find that that same thing holds true when it comes to Jesus. There are those in our church, there are those in our culture, there are those in our neighborhoods, in our places of employment, and there are some of us today that if I were to ask you about Jesus, you would say that I know who he is. You could spout off a a number of historical facts about Jesus. You could roll off some Bible verses. You could throw out and kind of tease out some teaching of Jesus. You know who he is. But the difference made in your life isn't from merely knowing who he is, but in fact is knowing him and the power of his resurrection. And and that's what we're going to see in this account here in the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. So as we open up Luke 24, what we find is that Jesus has died on Friday, that he was handed over to the Roman authority, that he has been betrayed by his own people, that he has been nailed to the cross, and the disciples watched as the spear went into his side, and the blood and the water poured out, and he has been entered into the grave. And and, and the overwhelming sense and feeling found in the heart of the disciples is sadness and sorrow. The guy they followed, the one they thought had come for their good, the one that they had placed their hope and staked their future on, had died. And seemingly, they had found at the end. But then chapter 24 opens up, and, and what we see is that some women have gone out to the tomb, and they've gone to anoint Jesus, and while they were there... And discovering the empty tomb, verse four says, "'And when they were perplexed about this, "'behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, "'and they were frightened, "'and they bowed their faces to the ground, In the men said to them, "'Why do you seek the living amongst the dead?'' Angels. Angels at Jesus' birth, angels here declaring that he is resurrected, and they go on and they say, "'He is not here, but he is risen. "'Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee?' that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Christ's death did not catch him off guard. It wasn't that Jesus was there in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and, and the horde came up and he said, "Oh, huh, I didn't see this. I didn't know this was gonna happen. He had told them, he'd been preparing them all along to expect his death and to look forward to his resurrection. And they remembered his word. Verse 9 says, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to the rest. And so this is the deal. The women leave the tomb. They run back to where the disciples are gathered, the 11 of them, and then there's just this kind of group of the rest. We don't know how many of of them there are, but we know that their general tenor and kind of manner of existence was sadness, was disbelief, was doubt. And so these women come rushing into the room, and you can imagine they've kind of channeled this same type of deal. The, right? And so they go in and they're like, oh my goodness, you're not gonna believe it. He is risen. And the disciples hear it and they're like, what are you talking about? We're in the middle of a prayer circle. We're focusing on Jesus who's died. And they're like, I know, and he's risen. So they say, do you think they're crazy? Do you think they've lost their minds? And and before they can answer the question, Peter's out the door, and he's running, and John's quick on his heels, and they arrive at the tomb, and what they see there is the tomb empty, and they look in, they see his linen clothes by themselves, and they leave marveling. The women have told them that he's alive. They've said they've heard it from angels, and they get to the tomb. They see it empty. They see that he's made his bed, and they say, what could have happened to it? They completely discount the testimony of the women. And so two of the disciples, Cleopas and then one other who not, we're not given his name, they, they say, well, I guess we're just going to go home. This has, been, this has been real. This has been interesting. This has been all-consuming. I guess we're going to go home. So we pick them up on this journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, some seven miles, and they're in the midst of a discussion. The text tells us that in verse 14, they're talking to each other about all the things that had happened. And while they're talking and discussing together, now listen to this, this is important, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing them. So these two guys are on this dusty road, and they're walking along, and they can't shut up about it. The text kind of gives us the impression that just on and on they talk, on and on they discuss. And so they say, do you remember when he did this? Oh, yeah, I remember that. And, and I mean, it was so wild. Like, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the next thing I know, there's all this uproar and torches and yelling. And, and, and then he's in this kind of makeshift trial, and they're at Pilate's house, and they're at Herod's, and they're before all these people. And just, I'm just not really sure what's going on. And then he died. I just, I just kept thinking it would go a different way. I kept thinking that, oh, he's going to overcome the crowd. I kept thinking it'd be like all the other times before. Do you remember Jesus? He walked on water. And so when they had them in the middle of the trial, I thought, no, it can't go this way. Surely it's going to end differently. Surely it's going to change. Surely it's going to be different. And then in the middle of this, you can kind of see Jesus coming from the side street, right? And so they're walking along the way, and then all of a sudden Jesus just kind of walks up beside them. And and for whatever reason, God keeps them from recognizing Jesus. He keeps them from being able to readily discern who he is. And so Jesus walks up, and he asks One of the most interesting, innocent questions. Verse 17, he says, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? In essence, he says, what are you guys talking about? Well, they're dumbfounded. They they absolutely can't uh, fathom a reality where somebody from this area isn't acutely aware, well aware uh, of, of exactly what they're talking about. But look at what Luke tells us. He says, and they stood still looking sad. So they're walking along this way. They're journeying down the road. Jesus interjects. He says, what are you guys talking about? They turn to Jesus crestfallen, broken. Just stand there for a second. Because his question is calling on them, is requiring of them to run back through the chain of events from his arrest through his crucifixion and now the empty tomb. So Cleophas turns and he answers him and really asks him somewhat of a snide, uh, has kind of a snide remark, kind of this offhanded question. He says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? In essence, he says, have you been living under a rock? Now catch the irony here. This is Jesus who's well aware of everything that's transpired. They can't see that. They don't know that. And Cleopas turns to him and says, "You don't get out much, do you? Have you talked to anyone else? Any like crowd, mob, Barabbas, Pilate, crucifixion, a little bit of an earthquake? None of these things." And and Jesus just says, "In essence, what things?" He just kind of responds, you know, just kind of just plays ignorant. He says, "What things?" And so what we see is a spelled out understanding of who they thought Jesus to be. So he says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all people. Did you kind of catch that? This would have been an opportune moment for Cleopas to say, concerning the Messiah, concerning the Son of God, concerning the Son of Man, concerning all the one we have waited on. he says he's a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And so this is recalling in their mind, they're thinking of him calming the storm. They're thinking of him walking on the water. They're thinking of him multiplying the fishes. They're thinking of him healing the blind. They're thinking of when Jesus stood and the Pharisees asked him questions and he just left them stunned. Then when they would turn and ask him a question and Jesus would respond, they'd say, we just don't know, that was the best trick we had, Jesus. How did you not fall for it? They ask him questions on taxation and Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and they're like, we just, we thought we had you on the money thing. A prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all people, they don't discount Jesus in his power, they discount Jesus in his divinity. They missed it. They knew who Jesus was, but did they really know Jesus? So they go on and they say, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified. They're running down through the list of all the things that have transpired and taken place to Jesus. So we were following him and he was leading us and he was guiding us and there we were with him and there we were in the garden. And then the next thing we knew, The crowds came up, and and, 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 and he was handed over to the chief priests, and they had this court that they put into session. And they found him guilty of blasphemy, and from blasphemy they turned him over to the Romans. But notice what happens in here. They assign all of the blame to the chief priests and their rulers. They say it is them who have condemned him to death, and they who have condemned him. But listen to the hope. Listen to the hope and despair as they write in verse 21. He said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Have you ever put all of your hope on someone or something only to be disappointed? I mean, they're the trivial things, right? Like the flow back in the 80s. Everybody thought it was going to save the money getting their hair cut. It's a vacuum cleaner with clippers attached. How could that go wrong? It takes one haircut to realize that that didn't work, or you're my dad and you still have it. But but there's so many things that we put our hope on. Some of us put hope in, 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 in a car, some of us put it in a house. Some of us have placed hope and trust in relationships and have found those relationships to be broken. We invest so much of ourselves into someone, into this relationship, and we find that nothing is returned. And we find that. That we're broken that we're hurting because we desperately want this relationship to work out and so we placed all of our hopes and all of our dreams in this person well the disciples and and, and these two that are counted amongst the rest of them they've placed all their hope and all their trust in jesus they saw in jesus the one who would come and redeem israel so they look around and they see roman oppression they look around and they see poverty They look around and they see corruption, and they thought Jesus was the one who was going to set all of these things straight. But notice they speak of hope as something that's in the past. They don't say we hope still, they say we hoped, and so the elation of hope has given way to the crushing disappointment of defeat. They thought Jesus was, or they think Jesus had failed in their hopes for redemption, and they want to drive home the point that it's been a failure. They want to drive home the point that it's not going to change. They, they say yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Man, we've been waiting for three days. We, we thought maybe there was a chance, but no, it's been three days and nothing has changed. And, and then really just to make this story Uh, stranger for you, person who we don't know that's walking along and asking us lots of questions, really just to drive this point home, I want you to see how strange this is. You see, there were these women from our company and they amazed us. Read, we think they're crazy. We think they're just straight nuts. They went to the tomb this morning and when they didn't find the body, they came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Cleopas and his partner, they don't think this is true. If they thought Jesus was alive, they would have stayed in Jerusalem, but they didn't. They departed, going home or going to some village where they had accommodations for lodging. They go on, they say, so some of us ran to the tomb, and and we found it just as the women had said, but him they didn't see. They said, look, we thought there might be some credence to what these women had said, and so we kind of marshaled all, we stuffed down our emotions, we ran to the tomb, we got there, it's empty It's void. He's not there. Just like they said, we didn't see Jesus. Him we didn't see. Hope was briefly resurrected in them when they thought the tomb was empty and Jesus might be alive. But getting there, all they found was an empty tomb. All they found was an empty promise. All they found was a continual void in them that hope had formerly resided in. And then Jesus speaks. And it's interesting when Jesus speaks because it would seem to me that if you're going to have a grand unveiling, like this is the time, right? If if they're kind of running through this thing, like he wasn't in the tomb, we didn't see him, we don't know what's going on, that Jesus would be like, ah, it's me. And they're like, so all that was a joke. We knew it was you this whole time. And we were just waiting for you to reveal yourself. But No. And so Jesus still doesn't reveal himself. Look at what he says, though. He says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. It's interesting. Jesus uses the same word that Paul uses in his writing to Titus when he says that we were all foolish. In essence, it's this word used to describe those who disbelieve in God. So he looks at them. And it's interesting to say or to notice that he doesn't look and say, look, the tomb is empty. The women said, they saw me. Why don't you believe? Notice where he finds their fault. He finds their fault in their failure to read, to understand, and to apply the Old Testament. In essence, his word to them is, it shouldn't have depended on the testimony of the women. It shouldn't have depended upon the empty tomb. What should have been enough for your faith, for your trust, and to keep hope alive is the Old Testament scriptures. In them is sufficient proof and testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. This is the point that he finds fault in the disciples for. And so he begins to kind of ask them questions, and and notice that he's going to go through and explain things to them. He says, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It seems to be the sticking point for the disciples was that Christ had suffered. They understood that he was going to come back. They understood it would be difficult but never, they, they never fathomed, it never entered into their mind that the Son of Man, that the Messiah, would be crucified. It was just beyond their ability to understand. It was beyond their ability to conceive. They found that to be ludicrous. They found it to be unimaginable. But yet still here it was, and so to them it proved that Jesus was not the Messiah. And so he questions them on this. He says, don't you understand the necessity of the Son of Man coming and suffering? Don't you understand the necessity of these things prior to his entering into his glory? So we ask the question of why. We ask the question of why. We get the sense in reading scripture that God is holy, and that none can approach God. And because he's a holy God, and because he is a just God, he must punish sin. And kind of the unfolding narrative of scripture says that all of humanity has rebelled against this God, But this God was good and loving, and he sent his son Jesus to be the full fulfillment of the law. And being the full fulfillment of the law wasn't just doing everything right, but in fulfilling the law, Jesus took upon himself the penalty and the punishment of all sin for all time. And this is how he did that. He did that in dying. And when he died, he died in the place of these disciples and he died in my place, and he died in your place. So Jesus says, was it not necessary? We should respond and say, it was absolutely necessary. There is no hope for the Christian outside of the crucifixion and the resurrection. There's no hope. There's good teaching, there's morality, there's encouragement, there's this driving to be better, to suffer for our neighbors, but there is no lasting hope without the resurrection. So Jesus goes on. In verse 27, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I want us just to imagine, just to think through what this would have been like for the disciples for a moment. It says he explained to them all those things for Moses and all the scriptures, all those things concerning himself. So Jesus is interpreting scripture through Jesus. So this is a guy who who is, who is there, and now he's turned from just kind of informed listener to instructor, and he turns to them and he says, look, Cleopas, you know the Bible. Cleopas says, yeah, I know the Bible. He says, do you remember in the beginning when God created all things? And he says, yeah, I remember that. In the beginning, uh, God created all things. He spoke into the vast expanse, and he created all of life. Jesus says, man, that's, that's really good. I'm, I'm glad that we're kind of tracking with one another. He says, Do you remember in the garden that, that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when they sinned, when they fell, and God was removing them from the garden? Do you remember uh, this little, little phrase? That, and it's just kind of this it says, speaking to the serpent, he says, You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to turn and crush your head. Cleopas is, says, Probably, yeah, yeah, I absolutely remember that. Man, that's the hope of the Messiah. Jesus turns and you can sense the tenderness in his voice when he would have said something similar to, that was Jesus. He says, and do you remember, and just kind of a little bit further down when God picks Abram and he's going to send him out, he says, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing to all people. And Cleopas says, yes, Father Abraham, I, I know this, I remember this, we live this. He says, all people are blessed in Jesus. He says, okay. He says, okay, what about this? Do you, remember, do you remember Moses? He says, what are you? Are you back under that rock? Of course I remember Moses. He said, okay, so Moses led people free, right? He says, yes, of course. He, he led them up out of Egypt. He led them up out of captivity. He says, so does Jesus. Cleopas says, I I understand how. He says, all right, do you remember this verse? He says, in Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it shall be to him that you shall listen. He says, Cleopas, the prophet you've been waiting for, the one like Moses, the one who you've set your hopes on, that was Jesus says, Cleopas, do you remember the promise God made to David? Cleopas says, I remember a promise. Which one are you talking about? And he says, okay. When God made the promise to David and says, and of your kingdom and of your house, it shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Cleopas, have you ever wondered how David's throne would be steadfast forever? He says, yeah, I I wondered that. He said, that was Jesus. Then he turns, and what he does here is is really kind of gets to the heart at what Cleopas would have begun to struggle with. So he moves from easy to hard in the book of Isaiah. He says, Cleopas, do you remember the words from Isaiah, what we've kind of staked our hope and promise on that for us would be found in Isaiah 9? He says, for us, a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And Cleopas would have said, yes, but he died. He he died. We remember the promises. We remember the, the word spoken in the beginning. We remember the Son, and we thought he was the one. And we staked all our hope and all our trust on it. This moment Jesus might have said, But do you remember in Zechariah when he says, Oh, your king comes low and mounted on a donkey? We remember Jesus did that a week, a week and some change ago. He said, That promised in Zechariah, that was made for Jesus. And then he turns. In Isaiah 53, you can imagine Jesus quoting a long passage there because he wants Cleopas to move from knowing who Jesus is to knowing Jesus. Isaiah 53 Begins and says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like the root of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. And the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Cleopas, that is Jesus. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken from the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Cleopas, this man of sorrows, this man of affliction, that is Jesus. So Jesus enters into this dialogue that would have likely been much longer. And he's walking with the three of them, and Jesus is no longer kind of this this man who's come alongside them, but now he's one that they want to journey with them. And so, they go to turn off, and Jesus acts like he's going to continue on down the road. And they, they entreat, and they beg him, and they say, You need to come with us. You need to stay further with us. It's already night. So Jesus goes in, and he sits at the table with them. Now, Luke 22 gave us the last picture of the disciples gathered at the table when Jesus was setting them up for what it was going to be like for life without him. He said, This Blood is the covenant. This, this wine is the covenant of my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. This bread is my body, which is broken for many. So that's the last time they gathered at the table together. So he's there at the table with them, reclining on the ground. They're looking at Jesus. They want him to continue to going on. And look what he does. He takes the bread, he blesses it, and breaks it. Gives it to them. And in that moment, Their eyes are open. Everything made sense. They went back to the room. They went back to his telling of of his suffering, of telling of his crucifixion, and in that moment, they knew. Their eyes are open. Jesus disappears, and they turn to one another, and they say, all that in the past that he said was Jesus, and now we know the one gathered in our midst, that was Jesus. They've moved from knowing who he was to knowing him in an instant. And they begin to recount, they begin to look back at the text and they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? Jesus revealed through the Old Testament, Jesus revealing himself on the road and Jesus revealing himself in the breaking of his, a breaking of the bread there in their midst. And they were chained. And they were set apart. And so they gather up all their stuff. They run back to Jerusalem. They bust into the room. And this is what they find. They find the 11 gathered around the table. And they run in. And they're ready to do that high-pitched shrieking sound. But the moment they open the door, the disciples say, he is risen. He is risen. See, Jesus had appeared to Simon already. And Simon had come back. And they had encountered the risen Jesus. And they would forever be changed and never remain the same. And the same stands true today. We're on journeys. We're not headed to Emmaus, but we're headed to an eternal destination. And it makes all the difference in the world, all the difference in your lives, whether you merely know who Jesus is or you know him. You can know who Jesus is. You can know Jesus as a prophet, You can know him as one who teaches well. You can read the writings of the New Testament and be inspired to be a better neighbor. You can do that, and that would not be a bad thing. Many of us would benefit by having better neighbors. You can read through the New Testament, and you can radically transform how you live. You can see the moral teaching of Jesus. You can see the way he lived his life, and you can begin to kind of move away from the things that even culturally today we would say, those things aren't moral. And that would be a good thing. That would be a significant thing for some of us, but that would not be an ultimate thing. See, some of us follow the discount Jesus. Follow this Jesus who we know some about, we know maybe even a lot about, but he is the discount Jesus. Because he's the Jesus who never had to suffer and die and was never truly resurrected. But there's a difference. There's a distinct difference, and it runs the opportunity to move you from receiving the wrath and the penalty of punishment of your sin to receiving the forgiveness of God because Jesus has already taken on the wrath of God. He has died for you once so that you may live for him for all eternity. To know him, to know him in the power of his resurrection, to know that Jesus who came on the other side of the grave, is to come to him confessing sin. Isn't to come to him posturing and saying, look, I am a good person. You're doing well to get me. It's to come to Jesus to know you are broken, to know you bring nothing, to come to Jesus confessing all your liability, receiving all of his life-transforming power and ability. To know him is to confess sin. To know him is to receive forgiveness. Do you know that in confessing sin, you receive forgiveness from God because you confess sin to the risen Jesus? Not a good and moral teacher, but the Son of God come, fully God, fully man. You receive forgiveness. And this is so difficult for many of us to take in. It's so difficult for many of us to accept because what we remember in the confession of sin is the rejection of the people we confess it to. So you go to your wife and you say, I've done this. You go to your parents and you say, I've done that. I've done wrong. And what we have received from them over and time again is rejection. A changed attitude, bitterness, hardness of heart in them. And so that it has conditioned us in some sense for what to expect when we confess sin to Jesus. And I can tell you that nothing is further from the truth. We come to Jesus broken. We come to Jesus lame. We come to Jesus blind. We come to Jesus dead. He makes us alive. He heals us. He restores our sight. We are made whole in the blood of Jesus. But coming to Jesus, confessing our sin, receiving forgiveness of sin, we come to a Jesus who expects us to give our lives to him. And hold nothing back. We come to a Jesus who says to us. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden And in me you'll find rest. But in this Jesus where we find our rest. We find also one who would be the Lord of our life. We find one who is good and who is worthy. But who is demanding that we would give to him. All that we are. And so we sees, it seems that we can live our lives simply knowing who he is. You can engage in conversation. Somebody can ask you, are you a Christian? And you would say, man, I know who Jesus is. My grandmother was baptized. I went to church with her. I even came to Ridgecrest a time or two. It was a terrible experience and I never came back. But nevertheless, I was there. You can go through your whole life simply knowing who he is or, you can know him. So we have two classes of people. We have those who you would say that you have already submitted yourself to Jesus, that you have known him for the forgiveness of your sins. But when you really look at your life and you look at the way that you've lived, you would say that you live your life in such a way as that you're living as if you only knew who he is. The resurrection, you would say, has made a difference for your life eternally, but it does not make a difference in your life today. What I would tell you is that there is only one way to know him. If you would know him in the power of his resurrection, then you must know him as Lord and Master. There's no way to follow Jesus outside of making him Lord and Master of your life. We cannot follow the discount Jesus. Man, that there are those in this room today, a friend begged you to come and you just wanted them to quit asking, so you came, which is, a, which is a noble. I hope your friend honors that in some sense. You came in skeptical, you came in doubting. And you can leave this place still knowing who Jesus is with no change in your life. Or you can leave this place knowing him and being changed eternally. And as God has set things up, that choice falls to you. I would tell you there is no middle way, there is no putting off, there is no kicking the can down the road. Each of us has to make a choice and none of us knows how long our lives will be. My prayer for you, and in these next moments as we turn and have an opportunity of imitation and reflection, That if you don't know him, but you want to, that you would turn to the person beside you, that you would find somebody near you, or you would come and find one of the staff and say, tell me how to know him. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Move from knowing who he is to knowing him. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray that we would have a desire to know you through your son. God, I pray especially for those in this place. Now, they've known who Jesus is for a long time. They've been to church, they've gone to camp, but they don't know him. So Father, I pray that your spirit Would move and stir in them that you would convict them concerning sin righteousness and judgment that you would move them from darkness to light from death to life you would help them to receive forgiveness one for them in the blood of jesus god i pray for encouragement for those who man they are convinced and they believe that they know you but they're not living them God, that they would live lives yielded to your spirit, submitting themselves to you in all things. Your word tells us that you are good and you do good. God, would you help us to believe it? Would you help us to live lives that testify to it? We submit all these things to you. In your son's holy and precious name, amen.